Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. There's a gap when it comes to drinking water systems. Right now, the 150,000 residents of Jackson, Mississippi are forced to boil their water after their treatment system failed more than a week ago. And many tribes are forced to come up with solutions to similar restrictions on drinking water because of contaminants, poorly funded infrastructure, or looming water shortages. We'll take a look at the drinking water divide coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The search for the remaining suspect in the stabbing attacks in Saskatchewan over the weekend is now in its fourth day. Meanwhile, as Dan Karpinchuk reports, the James Smith Cree Nation is still in shock and grieving after 10 people were killed and others wounded. The intense manhunt has again spread to the entire province of Saskatchewan for 30-year-old Miles Sanderson, the remaining suspect. His brother Damien, the other suspect, was found dead Monday on the reserve. A possible sighting of Miles Sanderson on the reserve yesterday proved to be false, and earlier reports that he might be in Regina have not borne out, according to police. But in the James Smith Cree Nation, 120 miles northeast of Saskatoon, relatives of the victims are grieving, many of them for Gloria Burns, a respected elder and a first responder, who was killed when she took the call for help. My sister was a, a very caring woman. Um, she had time for everyone and uh, tried her best to look after everyone. You know, this tragedy that happened here on our land, it's all because of drugs and alcohol. Police have still not been able to provide details about the motive for the attacks. They say some of the victims appear to have been targeted while others were selected at random. Miles Sanderson has a lengthy criminal record, and according to a parole board document, he has a history of violent offenses, including assault. He now faces three counts of first-degree murder, as well as attempted murder. Police have warned the public to be cautious, adding that he's believed to be armed and dangerous. Meanwhile, three of the victims remain in hospital in critical condition. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Members of the Apache Stronghold, a coalition of Apache people, other Native people and non-Native allies, held a day of prayer Tuesday in San Francisco as they continue their fight to protect a sacred site from a proposed copper mine. They're seeking a rehearing in their case in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco against the U.S. to protect Oak Flat in Arizona from Resolution Copper. Oak Flat is located within National Forest land east of Phoenix and is part of a land swap approved by Congress in 2014 between the federal government and the company. In June, the court ruled 2-1 to one in favor of the government's decision to transfer Oak Flat to the company, finding it does not burden the religious practices of Apache people. Members of the Apache stronghold say the sacred land is now on the chopping block, and if mined, Oak Flat will be swallowed in a massive crater, ending their religious and traditional practices in the area forever. The case is being considered for a rehearing in front of a full 11-judge court instead of the three-judge panel. Native pop recently showcased indigenous music in downtown Rapid City. South Dakota Public Broadcasting C.J. Keene has more. Labor Day weekend brought Rapid City its first annual pop fest at Main Street Square. It was a full day of music across genres. 
Lafon Janice is the executive director for Native Pop. She says there's a value to providing performance stages to Native musicians. The lyrics are amazing and it's relevant to our lives and uh, we brought in artists from around the country and then of course we had local artists as well. We all experience a lot of the same social issues. It was really cool to see and it's good for our youth to be able to see this. One of those performers was Welby June. He describes his sound as soul music and says engaging with art builds connections. It's great to have this platform to help the local community see the different facets of native folk. That's uh, incredibly helpful in building a community relation in Rapid City and around the area. Janice says Native Pop hopes to make more musical events possible in the future. For National Native News, I'm CJ Keen. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Jackson, Mississippi is suffering a severe water crisis. Residents are forced to boil their own drinking water, and there remain restrictions on taking showers for many residents. The failing water treatment system disproportionately affects the state's black population. It's not the first time that drinking water in the city was deemed unsafe to drink. Years of neglect and underfunding have been at the root of the problem. In some Native communities, access to clean drinking water has also been a long, difficult struggle. Today we'll get a look at some of the challenges that remain for tribal citizens to get clean, reliable drinking water. We also want to hear from you. How's the drinking water where you live? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848 or 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on our social media, our handle 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's start with an update on the Jackson, Mississippi water crisis from State Representative Ronnie Crudup Jr. He's also the Executive Director for New Horizon Ministries Incorporated, and he's speaking with us from Jackson, Mississippi. Representative Crudup, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you so much for allowing me, having me. Absolutely, absolutely, sir. And please tell us about the current state of your water supply in Jackson. Last I heard, pressure had been restored. Is the water also now safe to drink? No, the water is not safe to drink at this current moment, but it has been restored uh, in parts in Jackson. Uh, there are some pockets that people are still suffering from some low water pressure, but uh, most of the uh, city uh, population does have water now. Uh, the pressure is pretty much, like I said, there, but uh, it's still not safe to drink. So that's why we're still necessarily every day kind of giving water distribution and things of that nature. Now, are folks still restricted from taking showers and, and other daily parts of living, or is life somewhat resuming back to normal? 
Well, it's not. It's definitely not back to normal just yet. Like I said, it's not safe to drink. It's not safe to brush your teeth with, uh, cook with, it, it, you know, either. So uh, if we, it seems like we may be a week out before it's considered, I guess, safe. Uh, there's testing it pretty much every day at this level now, now that they got the PSI back up. Uh, but uh, most people are still uh, not feeling comfortable doing all the other things. Now, people are, you know, some people are feeling sh- uh, okay to shower with. I know me and my family, we're taking baths and showering with it. We can flush toilets. Uh, but like I said, you just can't cook with it uh, or brush your teeth to wash, you know, all those basic necessities like that. And, and remind us again, uh, Mr. Curtis, how long has this crisis been going on now? How many weeks are we into? Well, we have been in a boil water notice now for uh, almost two months, uh, even before the water totally went out. Uh, we have been in a boil water notice um, from the, I guess, from the health department and the EPA. Uh, but, you know, we totally went out for about two or three days. People just didn't have any water pressure, period. Two or three days. And, and again, what is the root cause of all of these issues with the water supply there in Jackson? Well, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a failing um, water system. This thing is, is, is 30 or 40 years old, um, you know, and, you know, there have been really a lot of updates to the water system over these past years. So uh, there has been plans to try to, you know, get some resources to be able to fix it. But Jackson um, has been losing population, which means we've lost tax base and, and revenue to be able to, to fix it adequately. And so um, that's what we've been, you know, I guess suffering from just not being able to have the resource to fix this thing. And eventually it just end up, you know, uh, tearing up. I mean, last year, uh, during February and March, we had a water, uh, I mean, our ice, you know, a ice storm that actually, you know, shut us down for over three weeks last year. Uh, myself, personally, I didn't have water, any water uh, that was coming out of my, my faucet for three weeks. And uh, so last year was definitely a lot tougher than dealing with this year. This year we've had maybe about three or four days, but uh, last year was did. And so we've kind of, since that time, uh, it has kind of gotten worse and worse. And so this has kind of been one, something we've been dealing with and trying to make the best out of it. But uh, it's definitely not something we're trying to get used to. So these are ongoing issues. Are, are folks in the habit of storing water bottles and, and taking other precautions to be prepared for events like this? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, we, we keep, you know, at least two 18-wheeler loads of water on stock uh, ourselves um, to make sure that when water does go out or does go to a board water notes, we can get it to residents. Uh, but yeah, most people are actually keeping uh, precautions of water just stocked up, you know, just so when things do happen. And how big is Jackson, Mississippi? Uh, we're about a population of about 150,000 residents right now. And so uh, we're the largest city actually in the state of Mississippi. Um, and uh, we've kind of, you know, I think, you know, last 10 years, we lost somewhere between 10, 15,000 residents. Hmm. Now there's a there's a tribe there in Mississippi, the Mississippi Choctaw. They're down there near Philadelphia area. Do you know of any uh, Mississippi Choctaw citizens that live in the Jackson municipal area? Uh, I don't know of any that live in the Jackson area. Uh, I've been to Philadelphia a lot myself over the years. Um, down there, you know, um, you know, for for years I've been going there since I was a teenager. Um, but you know, I don't know anybody personally uh, who's in Jackson right now. Because this right now, this is just a Jackson crisis. It's not a, a you know, pop all over the state of Mississippi. So it's really Jackson that's had these major needs. Now, it's not affecting other cities or other communities in Mississippi. But is that a, a concern going forward that that other cities could face similar issues with their water supply? Um, not necessarily um, today. I mean, we do have one suburb 
that actually is connected to our water system, who actually, when their when our water goes out or is messed up, they have to deal with some of the same things. But a lot of the surrounding suburbs have already come off of our system, and so they have newer systems that they don't have to deal with a lot of these issues. But some of the older systems, like in the Delta and some places, they are kind of some, you know, similar dealing with some of these issues as well. So uh, we're glad that, you know, over, uh, you know, this past year that the infrastructure, um, it, you know, stuff came through. And so we can try to help make some of these fixes that we need in, in cities like Jackson and, and throughout the Delta. And going forward, Representative Kerdrup, how confident are you that the city of Jackson will be able to rectify some of these water infrastructure issues so you won't be dealing with these issues continually in the years to come well we are I'm, I'm hopeful i'm always optimistic that we can uh get this thing fixed but you know i told you last year we had some of the same issues and you know uh nothing was done really from it you know we uh, as a state representative we asked for uh funding you know for our city to make some you know up, some of these upgrades need to be done uh, but we didn't get it, and so we're back to the same position now. Now, I'm thankful that the governor has declared a state of emergency and said, hey, we're going to, as a state now, do some things to fix the system. Uh, but, you know, uh, we, we need a, a lot of revenue to come to the city to make sure this thing is fixed, and we won't have this problem again. Well, I want to ask, I mean, what is the price tag t- to replace all this these aging pipes and everything else and get this water supply system up to where it needs to be? Well, I think our total needs has been estimated somewhere about $2 billion, but that's, that's you know, our water system, that's our drainage system, and our sewer system also. I, um, from, I think, last year, we were asking somewhere a, a neighborhood of about $55 million. That would, uh, you know, weatherize the system, um, you know, make sure so, you know, if it's, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of uh, weather-related issues, we wouldn't have it like floods and freezing. Uh, that wouldn't stop the water flow anymore. And then also um, we had, you know, to fix some of the pumps, uh, things like that. So we're, I think we're looking at somewhere between 55 to $60 million that will put a big dent in, you know, of what we need it done. Okay. And just uh, people living there, your residents in Jackson, how's the morale? How are people holding up amidst all of this turmoil? Well, you know, people here in Jackson are very resilient. You know, like I said, we've a lot of times gone through some of this stuff before. And so uh, people are holding up best they can. You know, it's not something that we love to deal with, but we make the best use out of it. You know, we're we're the hospitality state. And so uh, people are known for being hospitable. And so we have people that are, you know, volunteering and, and giving out water pretty much every day. We've been doing this now for almost two weeks, giving out water, daily distributions, that site. And we're going to keep on doing it until uh, we have clean water for our residents to drink. And so um, people are, you know, making the best out of they can. But, uh, you know, it's not something that people just kind of love to do, but we're, 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 we're getting through it. Well, Representative Kurtup, I like how you uh, remind us that Mississippi is the hospitality state. And, and I want to thank you for joining us today, giving us that update. And, and thoughts and prayers to everybody there, all of your fellow residents uh, there in, in Jackson, Mississippi. We're thinking about you folks, and we wish you all well. Thank you so much. Let's head out west now to Hopi Lands in Arizona, where we're joined by Dr. Carrie Nuva-Joseph. She's the director of the Department of Natural Resources for the Hopi Tribe, and she's a Hopi citizen. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. Carrie, the Hopi, like other tribes, are facing water challenges, and in your case, high levels of arsenic dating back to the 1960s, more than, more than 50 years ago. What caused this contamination? Well, that fact is correct. You have it correct there. Um, 
with the contamination, we have some gen just geologic, um, naturally occurring arsenic in our groundwater just from the bed formations below. And so, uh, you know, the EPA pretty much modified their water quality standards back in the early 90s. Um, after that, uh, part of our communities were relying on um, this drinking water source that had high levels of arsenic about three times the limit um, at that time. And so, uh, you know, that we've been having those challenges of, of having to go haul water and, uh, you know, rely on bottled water sources for, for many years until just recently there's some... Um, very positive news that's coming out of Hopi in terms of of restoring that that um, arsenic uh, water, that contaminated water, in which communities had to, you know, haul water for. You know, in our ha water hauling communities here in Hopi, we have about 30% that still have um, no potable water water system in their homes, and and that's about 15,800 dollars a year to haul water yearly for about 30 percent of our households here in Hopi. So, um, you know, arsenic is just one of them, one of the contamination issues. We're speaking with Dr. Carrie Joseph. She's in Hopi and she's telling us about uh, some longstanding water access, water supply issues there uh, in Hopi lands. And we're going to talk more about these issues with Carrie coming up after our break. Folks, if you want to question, or if you have a question to ask, or if you have a comment to share about our show today, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That is our number, 1-800-996-2848. We've got a great show lined up for you. Other guests from other tribal communities are going to talk about water. We'll be right back. Affordable home ownership is out of reach for many Native Americans. Some individuals are looking to lower costs by building their own houses. It's a possible model that some affordable housing programs are offering. We'll find out what it takes to build your own home on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about access to clean drinking water today. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can do so by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking with Dr. Carrie Nuva-Joseph. She's the director of the Department of Natural Resources for the Hopi Tribe. And Carrie, you just did a, a really thorough job of explaining some of these longstanding issues there at Hopi. Arsenic levels three times what constitutes a, a safe level in some cases. Many families forced to haul water and, 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 at a tremendous expense to do that as well. And um, the tribe recently, however, celebrated the completion of the Hopi Arsenic Mitigation Project. Congratulations. What are the key features of this project? 
Yeah, so I just want to acknowledge under the leadership of Chairman Nabanyama that uh, we just completed the Hopi Arsenic Mitigation Project, which uh, just is actually um, going through some system, system, there's a system running right now. The system should be running. Um, it's really a $22 million uh, pipeline, water pipeline that goes through these affected communities um, from arsenic. Um, and it's about 40 miles of pipeline that passes through several villages. And so this was a huge, um, huge relief and a huge uh <laughs> Um, you know, celebration that we had here in Hopi regarding this, um, the completion of this project. And so it was really hard for uh, Nevangyama to put into words what he felt about this completion because, you know, so many of our Hopi citizens did have to haul their water um, uh, from border town locations just to have safe drinking water. Um, so it, it's been been a while. It's been a long time coming. Like you mentioned, 1960s. You know, that's that's a really long time to be without clean water, and kind of displays and illustrates for you the disparities. But with the partners that were involved with this project and, and strong leadership, um, like the Hopi Utilities Corporation, we have the DNR Department, Department of Natural Resources, IHS several other, um, the BIA Environmental Protection Agency and some other of our other associates, you know, we were able to complete this project. And so what this project does is basically it's just, um, it, it connects to existing water infrastructure. And so uh, unfortunately, just because it, it, it connects to an already an existing water infrastructure source, we're going to possibly in the next phase look at developing maybe some some other um, um, extensions, water main extensions to this main pipeline in the near future, uh, which is going to require some pressure upgrades and possibly some other additional wells to um, take, you on, take into account our um, increasing population growth, um, you know, because Hopi is going to be here forever. And um, this is uh, this is our Hopi Titsqua, which we were instructed to 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 live and and settle here. Um, so we've been here um, since time immemorial, and so we're going to have to consider those things uh, in terms of water infrastructure in the future. Hopi will be here forever. This all sounds really really promising. And but let's go back to these arsenic issues that date back uh, several generations now. And uh, are you folks seeing the effects uh, of arsenic poisoning in, in any of your tribal citizens there at Hopi? Well, as a local community member, I can tell you that, you know, they, they EPA tells us, instructs us, you know, you, you can't, and boiling water is not going to, um, you know, clean, get your increase your water quality you know it's it's not going to improve the water quality and so for a long time before that not there was no education occurring um you know we uh, people thought boiling water would suffice uh that wasn't going to do the work <laughs> do the trick because uh, arsenic does not dissolve it's a metal um and so you know, we, we've honestly, there has been just because of the cost of hauling and the cost of going to retrieve water sources, there were, I mean, that's just kind of what we, we had to drink, you know, and we, 
we drank that water. We, we used it in our ceremony. We used it in our stews to make our traditional foods. And because many families, some of some families did not have access to um, retrieving those drinking water sources in large quantities in that way. And so, you know, um, and, and that way it, it was a huge disparity for our community. But uh, so this brings a, a, a big positive um, this project is a positive um, outcome for, for, you know, just overcoming all those challenges and now they can consume it without worrying whether or not, how, you know, not really understanding how much arsenic they're consuming. You know, and, and we talk about arsenic a lot, um, but the other challenge we also have here in Hopi that not many people are very familiar with is some issues that we have with, um, you know, uranium contamination in some of our uh, Hopi communities, Western Hopi communities, um, and and, and that the issue that we're dealing with quality uh, quantity. Um, one village community is is on the brink of running out of water with their existing wells, and right now we're trying to to um, develop a more dependable long-term well um, for, for that community. And so, you know, in, in an area where there is some documented um, uranium contamination. And so, you know, not many people are familiar with that issue, but it, it really extends back to um, some of the mining history, heavy mining history that occurred here in the Four Corners region. Um, and so that's another another thing that we, we are trying to educate and get started with educating our community about is understanding, uh, you know, just where we are situated and, and what occurred all around us in this heavy mining, uranium mining, coal mining community, which really impacts the quantity of a water uh, quantities in the future, you know, our water security, uh, we can't tap into some, some of those resources because they're either contaminated or they've been pumped off to slurry coal all the way to Nevada and that water's gone, you know, and so those are some of the challenges that we're dealing with on top of some, uh, the drought conditions, but, you know, we are strong, we're a strong community, we're a very resilient community. Um, you know, culture and our heritage and our history keeps us strong. And so, you know, we are finding ways to overcome these challenges and, uh, you know, just no understanding our history and why we were were instructed to be here on Hopi Squad. That's, that's, there's a reason why we're here and we're going to figure out how to work around these um, conditions that are, you know, that we're having to um, deal with. And the Hopi, uh-huh. and the Hopi arsenic project, the mitigation project, that applies to a certain part of, of Hopi lands. But then you have these other issues you're talking about with uh, quantity issues and, and um, debris from from mining and, and other other um, heavy metals. But that's quite common, as you mentioned, around the Four Corners area, other parts of New Mexico and Arizona. And going forward. Um, how, how confident are you in what other types of steps is the Hopi tribe going to have to take in addition to the mitigation project that you just finished up earlier this summer? What else is going to have to occur to ensure that that all Hopi tribal citizens have access to, to clean, potable drinking water? 
Yeah, and so just to geographically uh, have a better understanding, we have 12 villages uh, across the Hopi Reservation, which is about 1.5 million acres. And so, you know, there's going to have to be several measures, uh, which in includes um, bringing partners together. Um, I don't think the arsenic mitigation project would have been successful without all our all our community partners, our tribal partners, our, our non-tribal partners. And so, you know, that's what it's going to take. And uh, really understanding how we incorporate some of our Hopi values and cultural cultural um, heritage and, and those things that are very important to us as, as Hopi, uh, informing those plans that are going to guide how we um, guide how we uh, respond to issues like drought, to um, continuing to secure our water needs into the future, um, while also pairing it with more of the maybe technical aspects of what's going on with the climate, um, you know, how much rainfall, um, you know, we're getting these floods now. And, you know, right now, Hopi Tribe is in, in the third week of, of drought, um, of flood mitigation in which our, our chairman issued an executive order because, you know, we've had these very heavy rainfalls. And what is that due to? That may be due to Climate change, um, obviously, is an obvious one, you know, and but Hopi hasn't seen this rainfall in a very long time. And if you come out here, it's it's very green. Uh, you know, there's grasses growing and it, it just looks so pretty out there. It's super green. But on the other hand, we had community uh, members that have been impacted from the floods, losing their homes. We have um, sediment buildup in washes, wash areas, which caused this flood in, in home, homes and flood for, in our cornfields, in which um, some of our farmers lost their corn crop, unfortunately, because of, of these floods, reoccurring floods just this year. So those are some of the challenges. You know, we're very grateful for seeing the moisture. We can see the ground is very happy. Um, but at the same time, you know, how do we deal with these intense rainfall events? And, and it's going to take a lot of planning. But on, at the base of that planning is, is going to be our Hopi community and our Hopi knowledge systems. So many layers to these water supply issues there on Hopi lands and, and other areas of Native America. Folks, if you want to get in on this conversation, what are you waiting for? 1-800-996-2848. Let's head a little further west and north. And joining us now from Chiloquin, Oregon, is Chairman Clayton Dumont, Jr. He's the chairman for the Klamath Tribes. Welcome to Native America Calling, Chairman Dumont. Itchin Boussant, good morning, and thank you for having me. Chairman, safe drinking water is not a concern for the Klamath tribes. However, continued droughts, uh, like Dr. Joseph just mentioned in the West, have created conflicts over the water supply in the federally managed Klamath Basin. What's going on? Yeah, so, you know, our word for ourselves, Elksikni, means people of the waters, um, marshes, lakes, rivers, streams. Um, and we've got a, a failing ecosystem out here that a lot of it is poisoned surface water, inadequate surface water. Um, while our drinking water is, is out of wells, um, many have responded in the agricultural uh, community by groundwater mining um, as the tribes have made water calls to enforce our, our water rights. 
So we have begun to see uh, wells fail uh, down south of, of our land um, in some of what were traditionally large lakes and, and wetlands where you can imagine there was a, a very, very high water table at one time. Now, at stake right now is uh, growing tensions between the Klamath tribes and, and, and local farmers. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So starting in 1907, uh, there was something called the Klamath Reclamation Project. Uh, they came in uh, and drained uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres of wetlands and, and whole lakes of, of open water. Uh, those were very phosphorus-rich lake beds, so they're very good farmland. Um, <clears throat> when they drained the wetlands, they also were taking away natural storage, which fed the nearby Klamath River and put a whole lot of uh, uh, pressure on Upper Klamath Lake, which is where our people live, uh, and uh, blew out a, a natural reef, which held the water levels stable, also drained many, many wetlands around Upper Klamath Lake, uh, brought in lots of cattle, straightened rivers and streams, degraded stream banks, uh, blocked off natural springs, fed them into pastures. So just tremendous, dramatic changes in about 120 years to the natural ecosystem up here, which resulted in a a degradation of water quality as well as a, a loss of water quantity. So now we've got a, a big lake, uh, about 90 miles of coastline, which is very central to us and to our culture, which is uh, poison, untouchable for months uh, each summer. In fact, uh, I just talked with one of our young people now who is charged with going out and, and testing it to keep track of the water there and He's reporting that some of his crew are getting rashes. Um, so despite, you know, the safety equipment that we've purchased for them, it's just really dangerous stuff. So going back well over 100 years, it sounds like just uh, the, com the total ecology there of that region has just completely changed. And how is this impacting fish and other wildlife that, that are, are culturally significant there to the Klamath people? Well, our first foods are in crisis. Um, two of our very important fish species, we call them chwam and, and koptu, which were staples of our, our ancestors. They were a, a fish that ran up our rivers and streams uh, at the end of each winter. Um, very important culturally, were given to us as a gift by our creator, uh, Gamokomps, the, the ancient of the ancients. Um, they've been on the endangered species now for over 30 years and just continue to decline in, in population. Uh, one of the most important ones, the, the COP2, are now down below, we think, about 4,000 in the wild, uh, Chwam below 20,000. Uh, you know, they were once here uh, in the millions. So that, we also have... Um, uh, a cereal food which grows in the marshes and on the lake wetlands called locus. Uh, it's really from a, a lily pot that uh, we dry and, and uh, treat, and it's something that keeps us through the winter, and uh, those are our poison. Um, when they do get enough water to survive, they're, you, know, you can't consume them. So it's, it's pretty dire, pretty dire. So 
the water supply is needed to allow these fish and another wildlife to remain strong, to remain healthy. And yet you have farmers that, that want that water supply to provide for their crops. Is that at the heart of this issue right now? Yeah, that is at the heart of it. Um, as, as I said, the, all of these changes have resulted in less and less water available. You know, the, the ecosystem isn't able to sustain it, and it's complex. It comes from the clear-cutting of large forests. You know, we had the largest uh, pine forest in western North America here on our reservation at the time of a forest termination. Um, when that termination happened, uh, they came in and they, they cut those forests down pretty pretty quickly. That impacted the water that's in the that stays in the ecosystem. It affected the water quality. You know, we have a high uh, phosphorus-rich uh, soil base here. Things are very volcanic. Um, uh, Giwas or Crater Lake is close by. We're speaking now with Chairman Clayton Dumont, Jr. with the Klamath Tribes. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call, text, or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. If you want to give input on today's conversation about access to clean drinking water, you can call us 1-800-996-2848. Before break, we were talking with Chairman Clayton Dumont Jr. of the Klamath Tribes in Oregon, and he was explaining these competing interests for how water in the Klamath Basin is managed. And Chairman, I, I want to ask you, what is the current status of, of the conflict now between the Klamath tribes and these local farmers? Is there any resolution in sight? You know, not that I can see. Um, the, the tribes are involved in a couple of Endangered Species Act lawsuits um, at the moment with, with federal agencies over decisions that have been made in part um, to send water to irrigators while you've got endangered species who don't have enough uh, water to spawn or for the young to, to survive in. So um, I have to say, you know, as much as it pains me, I'm, I'm not optimistic at this point. Now, there have been reports of um, some of these pro-farming interests being, being very hostile, aggressive towards tribal citizens. Can you confirm that? So there's quite a history of that, actually, going back at least a couple of decades. Um, you know, unfortunately, these struggles over water have, have in the past been, been racialized, and I don't want to suggest that that's gone away at all. But some of the more responsible leadership uh, down in the project, as well as um, the tribes, have, have worked to try to keep that tamp down. Um, you know, the, the irrigator community, much like tribal communities, are, are not homogenous. There's a lot of difference within. Um, some are far more strident than, than others. Now, these, um, these are, I mean, your, the, the Klamath tribes and, and their positions and, and their needs for how those waters are managed, those are protected by treaties, are they not? 
Yes, so we have a, a treaty, an 1864 treaty, where we ceded much of Oregon and a large part of Northern California in exchange for the right to live well on um, the resources that are available here, which at the time was about 2 million acres. By the time of termination, that was down to about 800,000 acres, but we retain uh, hunting and fishing and gathering rights on those 800,000 acres. So they are protected by treaty. Uh, like I said, they fish have been on the endangered species list for a very long time, but uh, things just continue to, to decline. We also have uh, quantifiable or quantified state water rights, which date back to time immemorial. So those are superior to any of the ag rights and they're in stream rights and in lake rights. So um, trying to you know, hold as much water as we can in the streams. And as I said, many of the irrigators have responded by going to groundwater and mining groundwater. And we begin to see now wells, wells failing, uh, particularly down in the project areas, in the, in the farming areas where there were once uh, all these wetlands and, and, and lakes. Fish and wildlife at grave risk. So now moving forward, Chairman, what are your, your biggest concerns with these water supply issues and how they're all going to play out in the coming years? Well, we are deeply, deeply concerned about groundwater. As I've been saying, we'd like the state to put in place what's called a critical groundwater designation, which would regulate the amount of groundwater that can be taken. Right now, it's just pretty much open season. People are pumping as hard and fast as they can. You know, the tribe has um, uh, test wells where we're able to take a look and monitor, you know, how, how the levels are declining. Uh, we work with uh, USGS, the U.S. Geological Service, on, on those. And we can just see a trend where, where they're not refilling. We're concerned about our, our rivers. Um, you know, they feed the lake, and based on uh, the the uh, fall that we had, which was, you know, wetter than usual in the spring, which was a little wetter than usual, we thought maybe the lake would refill uh, more quickly, but it didn't. And uh, the hydrologists are telling us that that's really about the groundwater mining. And what else are these hydrologists telling you? Because at the heart of this are these ongoing droughts. And from everything I'm reading, these droughts aren't going anywhere. They're going to be with us in the in the West for, for many, many years. So ultimately, if the water's not there, the water's not there. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, we have to work with the Bureau of Reclamation for the management of, of the lake. And they use uh, a 30-year period of record where they go back and they find a median whereby they expect, they set a, uh, an a estimated inflow, and then they put an irrigator's uh, allotment based on uh, that inflow. Well, if you look at the last you know 30 years, you can see that every decade is warmer than the one previous. Almost every year is warmer than the one before it. So we just keep arguing that that's insanity. You know that they have to adjust uh, the way they're thinking about this because looking back 30 years and expecting, you know, there to, to be a median outcome is just, just not working. So, mm -hmm. yeah, well, no we're, easy we're answers. working real hard to, res I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I just, yeah, I understand. I mean, appreciate this, this really, really insightful overview. And unfortunately, there just appear to be no easy answers for, 
for going forward. But, but Chairman, thank you for your time and, and giving us all of that information. And let's bring in a, another guest now. Joining us from Princeton, New Jersey, is Dr. Tommy Rock. He's an environmental scientist and postdoctoral research fellow at Princeton University. He is Dene. Tommy, welcome back to the show. Hi, good afternoon or good morning. Good afternoon, good morning. Uh, folks all over Native America are listening, Tommy. And I, I want to ask you, listening to our conversation today, our different guests, do you see commonalities among different Native communities and the water issues we're talking about today? No, no. It's like a, water, water is a really big issue, especially nowadays in, in the West. It's like um, water quality, water quantity, yeah. And you can see the the Colorado River receding. So I think it's just, it's just not going to be the the native population that they are going to they're really going to struggle, but also the the people that are using the Colorado River as well. And then also you have to go think about the groundwater depletion as well. Well, just now chatting with Chairman Dumont up there with the Klamath tribes in Oregon, it's really coming across loud and clear that there are no easy answers, and especially if these droughts continue. So um, what are some possible solutions? Because, uh, I mean, from, from everything we're hearing about and reading and, and, and watching on the news, I mean, it just sounds like in, in another generation or so, you could have entire communities just completely without water in much of the western United States. Yeah, yes, and it did happen before um, a couple of years ago with the town of Williams, just west of Flagstaff. They were without water. So it was like through the reality of that happening again in another community, that's just not too far off. And reading the news, and it's still happening in a small town in northern New Mexico, um, the town of Las Vegas. They're going through the same crisis same crisis as well as like um, they're looking at it once. I think something like in 50 days um, public water before the water is gone. Mm -hmm. Well, and then aside, um, and aside from, from these water quantity issues, and we also have these contamination issues that we're learning about today. And, and here's Tommy where, where I'm, I'm, I need some help here because, um, you know, there, there is a federal law, the Clean Water Act, that um, is supposed to make sure that we all have access to clean drinking water. So what's going on here? Why is it that we have so many challenges here, not just in Native America, but throughout the United States with communities that don't have potable water? What's going on? I think that um, we're beginning to see the, the lack of uptake of the water infrastructure um, for for what you see with the what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi. There's a thing called the technical, manageable, and financial capacity that was supposed to help the small drinking water system and the drinking water system to to replace and be upgraded. And and I know for my tribe that hasn't happened yet. And I think a lot of Places where there are people of color, I think a lot of those those areas has they have not had that happen yet, and it's supposed to um, upkeep the infrastructure so something something like that won't happen. 
Now, we hear of, of aging infrastructure throughout the United States. It's not just water supply systems. It's roads, bridges, power grids. And uh, the cost and the investment to get the entire country where it needs to be in terms of water infrastructure, is that even feasible in the United States? I mean, do we even have the money and the resources to do that collectively? I Well, I know with the current administration, they were um, putting out some funding available to, to help rebuild the infrastructure. It's like, um, I think the water infrastructure seriously needs some, some work as well across mm-hmm. the U.S. Now let's go, uh, you mentioned your own people there on the Navajo Nation, and um, Carrie Joseph also talked about the uranium there in Four Corners, and I know you folks have that on areas of the Navajo Reservation. Um, how badly impacted is the drinking water by uranium uh, in certain areas of the Navajo land? In areas that had previous mining activity, uh, it, it is. Um, in certain cases, more like the town of Sanders, they had their groundwater contamination, groundwater contamination, which where the public water was coming from. So that uh, that wasn't that was an issue until into a Naval Tribal Utility Naval Tribal Utility Authority stepped in and provided an alternative public water supply, which is coming from the Naval Reservation, and Sander is off the reservation, so now they have access to that potable water now, but that groundwater is still there, and just trying to find out where that groundwater contamination is happening, that's some of the research that I'm, I'm working on. And other communities that don't have access to potable water, like the community that Sander's in, in some cases, those um, spring, spring spring sources or unregulated water sources, that's still an ongoing issue. I know that's a huge problem over in the Black Falls area and other parts of the reservation. I know my tribe's been talking about extending a lot of the public water supply, and they do have funding to do that. But again, just like it's not going to provide water to all of the communities, I mean, to, to those isolated rural areas, but it will provide water to where there are, where there are population density. But um, unfortunately for some, some of the family members that, or some families that live out in rural isolated areas, that's just not going to happen. Earlier, Carrie touched on the fact that, that there are folks there at Hopi that have to, to carry their own water, transport their own water. And I know that at Navajo, that's something that's, fairly common in some of the more rural areas as well. Do you know about what percentage of of Navajo families there on the Navajo lands um, have to actually supply their own water, bring it in, truck it in, carry it in? And one of the studies that was done by another EPA along with, um, I believe, USPA or CDC, anyway, they came up with the 30% of the Navajo people that live on the reservation are hauling their water. So that's that's quite a bit, um, kind of the same amount of like percentage-wise that, that Kerry mentioned. The same thing is true for for my my tribe, and yeah, yeah there's, that, there's I mean, still 
I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish, please. I was going to say that I know that's a that's still an ongoing conversation, just like a, for researchers as well. I know there's that's a collective chief is trying to help um, with that as well as so it makes sense that I would have like some project going on to help um, address some of those as well. And there's some grassroots organizations that are working on that issue as well, um, like the Dig Deep and, and North Carolina Lake Enterprise is working on that along with another grassroots organization called Six World Solutions. So, so there is an effort, not from the tribal government itself, but from the grassroots and local communities that are helping are trying to help address the need for potable water as well. And I know for people that live in Jeddito, um, an area that is near the Hopi Reservation, I know for that area, it's like there is a need for public water since they don't have, so a lot of people from that area don't have access to potable water. They go to Kings Canyon and get water from, from the Hopi Reservation as well. So it's, it's just not um, Navajo. It's not just Hopi. It's it's um, mm-hmm. much more than just just us that are faced with similar problems. And I know there's some some tribal members from the San Juan Paiute are facing the same issue as well. Okay. Yeah, it definitely. I, I want to underscore that it certainly affects. It's is much bigger than just the Southwest or, or the Hopi or, or Navajo nations. And let's bring. Carrie uh, Joseph back in. Carrie, we've got about a minute before we have to wrap up the show, but we did have a caller that just asked a quick question, couldn't stand the line, and they were interested in, have there been any efforts to create um, native-led coalitions to address some of these larger water supply issues throughout Native America? If you could respond to that in about 40 seconds or so, uh, Dr. Joseph, I'd sure appreciate it. Some some water-led networks by um, maybe non-tribal partners that we have. I believe there is a native hydro network uh, that's out there. That's that's just a makeup of academics as well as other um, tribal partners. Um, There's a lot of nonprofits here on Hopi Reservation that aren't necessarily um, specific to water, but they definitely... um, or actually, the Black Mesa Coalition, um, Black Mesa with Vernon Masayas, but he's a local nonprofit that's trying to do some. Okay, Dr. Joseph, I'm, I'm sorry we're going to have to wrap up the show, but but appreciate you jumping in there at the end. I want to thank all our guests for a multifaceted discussion on water supply issues facing communities throughout Native America. Join us tomorrow as we take a look at what it takes to build your own home. I'm Sean Spruce. Please stay safe out there. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, 
protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Ameren's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Ameren.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.